from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. It's the story that has shook Michigan and garnered national attention. Domestic terrorist plots to attack the Capitol, lawmakers, police, and kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I'm Russ McNamara, in for Stephen Henderson, a special edition of Detroit Today. We'll have the latest information. We'll take you to Heartland, into the neighborhood of one of those arrested during raids on Wednesday night. Plus, the history of militia groups and white nationalism in Michigan with expert Joellen Vineyard. And how much responsibility do conservatives take for failing to tamp down the harsh rhetoric? We'll talk with the president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Plus, we'll take your calls. Now, news. everybody. I'm Russ McNamara in for Stephen Henderson on a special edition of Detroit Today. The people of the United States of America have a rebellious nature. The country was founded by war, battles against taxation without representation, injustice, and the monarchy of Great Britain. That rebellious nature also played into the invocation of states' rights in 1861, though that was less about the freedom of southern states and more about the enslavement of Africans and the enrichment of white men. It ended with over 600,000 dead Americans in that civil war. Faced again with the prospect of hundreds of thousands of Americans dying, this time from an unseen disease, some people in this country chose to rebel. Democratic governors across the United States instituted lockdowns and stay-at-home orders earlier this year to stop the spread of the novel coronavirus that had already killed thousands around the world. Those orders profoundly changed the way of life for many in this country. Protests, funded and backed by conservative interests, sprang up, including at the state capitol in Lansing. At one of those protests in May... Armed people used their constitutional rights to complain about what they saw as overreach by Governor Whitmer. They objected to government-mandated lockdowns and most rules governing the pandemic. With violent and misogynistic rhetoric increasing in Facebook groups, several men armed with assault rifles entered the state Senate chamber and stood over a session. Later, there was a call to ban guns inside the Capitol. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky said that would be cowardly and essentially brushed off the violent rhetoric of conservative militia groups. We are listening to the many, many voices who are questioning our governor and the one-size-fits-all, heavy-handed, blunt-form instrument of government that has been used to stifle our ability to make progress from living in fear toward learning to live with this insidious virus. Shirky did not object to armed white men watching the senator's work in the chamber. Some of his colleagues reacted differently. At the time, Democratic State Senator Mallory McMorrow said she felt uncomfortable going to work. I'd be lying if I said I was, felt completely safe. And I know that that is the goal, right? When somebody comes dressed in full tactical gear carrying rifles, You know, I I don't see what the goal is besides intimidation. Now, the seeds sown in the early days of the pandemic have borne fruit. Members of this conspiracy on two occasions conducted coordinated surveillance on the governor's vacation home. Fox and Croft, in particular, according to the complaint, discussed detonating explosive devices to divert police from the area of the home. And Fox even inspected the underside of a Michigan highway bridge for places to seat an explosive. That's U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Michigan, Andrew Bird, speaking at a news conference yesterday. Six people have been charged in federal court with plotting to kidnap Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer and leave havoc in their wake. The group wants her tried for treason. They aren't alone. Attorney General Dannon Nessel says seven more men affiliated with the militia group Wolverine Watchmen face state terrorism charges. 
The individuals in custody are suspected to have attempted to identify the home addresses of law enforcement officers in order to target them, made threats of violence intended to instigate a civil war, and engaged in planning and training for an operation to attack the Capitol building of Michigan and to kidnap government officials, including the governor of Michigan. Turns out three men arrested on Wednesday as part of the domestic terror plot carried rifles into the Senate chamber back in May. President Trump has not done an awful lot to help that situation. And I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. You're wasting your time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. Well, it doesn't make any difference what happens. The governor of Washington? No, you know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't call. After Governor Whitmer criticized federal pandemic response, the president slowed down the response to the coronavirus by seemingly play favorites with supplies of ventilators and personal protective equipment. After a rally at the Capitol in April, Mr. Trump tweeted, Liberate Michigan. Speaking yesterday after news of the plots against her was revealed, Whitmer went after Trump once again for failing to denounce right-wing militia groups in last week's presidential debate. She says violent bigots will find no quarter in this state. So let me say this loud and clear. Hatred, bigotry, and violence have no place in the great state of Michigan. If you break the law or conspire to commit heinous acts of violence against anyone, we will find you, we will hold you accountable, and we will bring you to justice. On a Fox News entertainment program last night, Trump again failed to denounce militia groups or white supremacists, but did go after Governor Whitmer. But the left has been the problem for a long time. Antifa is a big, big problem. And, you know, I see Whitmer today, she's complaining, but it was our Justice Department that arrested the people that she was complaining about. It was my Justice Department that arrested them. But instead, she goes and does her little political act, and she keeps her state closed. Just this morning, the Michigan State Capitol Commission, the unelected body that oversees the Capitol building, reiterated that they would like the state's Republican-led legislature to pass bills preventing guns within the Capitol. According to Dave Eggert of the Associated Press, Senate Majority Leader Shirky says there are further conversations to be had, but banning guns would not, quote, get rid of all risk. Wednesday, the FBI raided a property in Heartland Township in Livingston County. That property later turned out to be linked to one of the men charged with conspiracy to kidnap the governor, Ty Garbin. WDET reporter Eli Newman went to Garbin's home yesterday and talked to nearby residents. Eli, good morning. Good morning, Russ. So set things up for me. Uh, We have seen these gentlemen who are charged all across uh, the lower peninsula of Michigan. One man was from Delaware. Attorney General Dan Nessel says this is the tip of the iceberg. What did you find in Heartland Township yesterday? Right, so by the time that I got to uh, Ty Garbin's house, already uh, there was a pretty robust media presence. So Wednesday night, there was a fairly robust law enforcement response to apprehending a Garbin at his home. Um and it was a fairly um, chaotic scene, I, I would say, for the neighbors that were living nearby. This was a, a fairly residential neighborhood. Um, as I was there, I saw a lot of kids playing in the street, coming out of school. Um, I actually spoke with uh, a girl who lived on the street. Her name's Ariana Marola. She's eight years old. And she uh, describes the scene, uh, what it was like uh, Wednesday evening. At first, I just saw the police, so I'm like, it must just be um, a crime or something. So I didn't pay much attention until Mom said there was a tank, and I looked down, and there was a bunch of Army people and all of this, and then I got really concerned. So um, as Ariana was explaining, um, first the Michigan, uh, as witnesses told me, the Michigan State Police uh, kind of quartered off the area around Garbin's house. And then military personnel came and followed. Um, Ariana's mother, Melissa, um, actually kind of watched uh, from that perimeter to see what exactly they were doing. They were bringing out, wheeling out carts, and it looked like like lab equipment. So that's why we were honestly thinking drugs. But apparently, I don't know what they're saying on the news is they were building explosives. 
which it could have been because it did look like laboratory stuff coming in and out. They were taking the vents off of the bottom of the house, like looking to see if things were all stashed and stored under the house. Yeah, so needless to say, uh, residents in that neighborhood were really surprised to hear um, that this individual, Ty Garbin, was part of this conspiracy to uh, kidnap Governor Whitmer and um, spoke with n- other neighbors that actually lived next door to um, Mr. Garbin. And uh, there was, uh, he was a fairly new resident to the neighborhood, had been living there for less than a year. Um, and as far as I could tell, had very little relationship with those who were living close to him. Yeah, we hear that a lot following major incidents of raids or an act of violence, you know, where the police go into a neighborhood and, you know, we often hear in the media, you know, from the media, oh, well, he seemed like a nice guy. We didn't, you know, uh, he was fairly quiet, things like that. Uh, Since he was new into the neighborhood, I guess, you know, neighbors are able to really get a good gauge on who Ty Garvin was. Yeah, they, they, um, I spoke with a a next door neighbor who was saying that, you know, she's only been there for a year. So there, and even though they were next door neighbors, their, you know, conversations were really sparse. I think she recounted one time where another individual who was also living at that house, her her dog kind of got into the the other person's yard. And so they kind of got into a, a spat about that, but very, very little interaction. In fact, I think the only thing that people really, could tell me that they knew about him is that he was an Ohio State fan because he had a little um, pendant on his front yard. But very little was known about him by his next door neighbors. That itself is a provocation for many here in Michigan. Uh, You know, we've seen how far reaching these are. People, you know, uh, arrest made in Belleville and then uh, the state terror cases. uh, People arraigned up in Antrim County up near Kalkaska and Traverse City. So this seems fairly far-reaching. You wonder how many people in other neighborhoods around the state are kind of scratching their head wondering what the deal was with those neighbors as well. Yeah, I I think I I need to reiterate the fact that this was a very residential neighborhood. This wasn't a rural cabin, a log cabin in the middle of the woods. Um, He was very close proximity to other people. Um, I I think as you read these criminal complaints, that uh, was released and uh, what we're seeing um, with the charges at the state level is that a lot of these people are are meeting online. And so when you're using Facebook and these other kind of social media platforms to um, kind of do these kinds of conspire and do these kind of plots, um, it it does become delocalized and there is, uh, it is far ranging of who kind of gets attracted to that kind of messaging. Yeah, you've got a a situation where four guys were supposed to be meeting on Wednesday night and then the arrest came. Long gone are the days where you had to have, you know, maybe some quiet pamphlets passed out uh, to people in secrecy or a random flyer on a telephone pole. And that's kind of one of the things that we'll talk about coming up next. We'll talk with the author of the book, Right in Michigan's Grassroots, and we'll be going and talking about political violence in America and in Michigan. Plus, we will take your calls at 313-577-1019. WDET reporter Eli Newman, thanks a lot. Thank you, Russ. We'll be back. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. And for Stephen Henderson, I'm Russ McNamara. This is a special edition of Detroit Today. Good morning. According to research by my next guest, today's white nationalists have roots in racist groups like the KKK and the Black Legion, groups that were quite active here in Michigan in the 1920s and 30s. Dr. Joellen Vineyard is a historian and the author of the book Right in Michigan's Grassroots, From the KKK to the Michigan Militia. Dr. Vineyard, good morning. Thanks good for morning. joining. So 
basically, is there something about Michigan that makes this state more prone to militia groups? Or is this fairly well spread out and it only seems bigger because we've had some high-profile incidents? Well, Michigan has been uh, home to a number of different right-wing groups all along, uh, so-called right-wing groups. And it probably is more important than many other states in that sense. It's also been home, of course, to a number of the major reform movements in the country, which get forgotten when these things come up about the right wing. Um, But yes, Michigan is not a microcosm of the United States. It's got its own special history, its own special economic dynamic. Yeah, it, it, it it seems like, you know, these movements have started here and gone elsewhere across the Midwest. In this particular incident, you know, it it was seemingly regional uh, with mostly arrests coming from Michigan, though, you know, there were meetings in Ohio. One of the men were from Delaware. But, you know, still, Michigan was the focal point for this particular incident. Has this been the way, like, throughout the history? Uh, If you look back at uh, Father Coughlin and, uh, you know, deep ties in Howell for a while with a very vocal voice of the KKK, uh, is you know has Michigan been kind of the always been kind of the epicenter? Uh, it has been uh, for many of these movements. We had a very strong KKK in the 1920s, um, Father Coughlin's movement, which is different. Again, each one of these movements is different from the other. They are a reaction to the time in which they originate or get organized. But yes, Michigan has been a, a center for all kinds of activity. Yeah. Uh, just this past weekend, a man in the anti-government boogaloo movement, uh, Eric Allport, was shot and killed by federal agents uh, during a shootout in a parking lot in Madison Heights. Um, Robert Snell, the great Detroit news reporter here in town, figured out that he played a small role in the disastrous Ruby Ridge standoff, and that kind of had echoes further on and spurred uh, Terry Nichols and Timothy McVeigh. Right. And blowing up the federal building in Oklahoma City. So, I mean, it seemed like after Oklahoma City and especially 9-11, uh, there was, you know, that some of these militia groups and white nationalist movements kind of, you know, went quiet. But they came back. Right. They came back in, in a different form in many ways. The militia of the late 90s and early 20s, or tw- early 2000s, uh, were, there is no Michigan militia. It's, it's a collection of different groups who call themselves militias. But most of those people were not violent. Um, this group sounds more violent, right, from what we know about them so far. And they sound much more like groups such as the Proud Boys um, in terms of violence. And it's it's a special group. It's related to the times that we're in, all of the conflicts, the concerns that people have right now. And so it reflects always a broader public sentiment uh, that is not violent, but that is very concerned. We're talking with Dr. Joellen Vineyard. Uh, she's an expert in militias and the white nationalist and white supremacist history of Michigan. Uh, If you'd like to chime in, give us a call at 313-577-1019. Do you see that the the violence of these groups, is that, do you think it's tied in with law enforcement at all? Uh, Two of the men charged are friends of a Southwest Michigan sheriff, uh, and they appeared with him at an anti-Governor Whitmer rally uh, over the summer. Uh, I'll read this quote uh, from the Barry County Sheriff, Dar Leaf. uh, When asked by a West Michigan TV station about appearing at a rally with these guys, he said, quote, I haven't read everything up on it. I've got other duties to do. It wasn't our investigation. I was shocked, did not see this coming with those guys. But we still can't convict them in the media here. They do have a right to fair trial. Do do you see as like a sheriff having close ties with uh, men who were later involved allegedly in this plot uh, as essentially looking for tacit approval from some of these law enforcement officers? Well, that, that could be p- 
possible. In each one of these time periods, there have been uh, police, sheriffs, congresspersons, uh, state legislators involved, ministers. And so there is a broader uh, group out there than just a few people who others might consider, you know, crazy, violent men. Um, So, yes, that. But that doesn't mean, again, that we should be defunding the police or, uh, you know, labeling all policemen as part of this. Uh, When it came to the rise of these militia groups, again, uh, it it seemed like it was a two-pronged approach. It was centered around, essentially, with the uh, run for for the presidency and the inauguration of Barack Obama. And that seemed to also spur maybe the political arm of that when it came to the Tea Party. While you had maybe the more fringe side uh, when it came to violence uh, in the rise of these militia groups, you also had the Tea Party right. who who also came to power. Are, are these two things linked in any yes. way? Yes, yes, they are. Often what we've seen uh, over time is that the, the, the violent aspects of these groups It's a cover almost for people who can say, well, I'm not part of that group, or I don't believe in those kooks. But at rock bottom, they're very concerned about what's happening in the country. And you're right that uh, it it began to emerge again with Barack Obama. And then with President Trump, um, there has been a sense that they've been almost freed to, to act because one of the things we are always taught in grade, from grade school on is, you know, stand up and take responsibility, uh, take care of democracy. And that's what these different groups see themselves as. They're trying to save the country from somebody. Yeah, and who more often than not when we've seen these militia groups rise and these various uh, white nationalist groups, who exactly are they saving the country from? Well, at, at different times, it's it's... But right now, the militia, and when it arose in the 90s, was worried about the government itself. It thought the government had been uh, overtaken by forces in communism, socialism, world order, and, and they were afraid that the government was the threat. And usually when Republican government, uh, presidents or governments came in, they were less concerned because they're always concerned about gun rights. That's, that's a major uh, uniting force. But uh, they, they do reflect what's going on in, in general in the communities. Yeah, I was going to say gun rights seems to be at the heart of a lot of this. Uh, in that sense, do these militia groups and Second, uh, Second Amendment rights activists, do they kind of have a point? Because Democrats have laid out that they do want to restrict access to some firearms, though a total firearm ban seems highly unlikely at any point. That's right. That, that they do worry that, that they're going to lose their arms entirely. That's what their claim always is. And that then the government will be able to come in and take over the people because they won't be able to arm again. They won't be armed and able to rise against the government. Yeah, is there is there some kind of disconnect there? Because it, it seems the same people who are, uh, at least in the instance of these rallies and protests uh, on the state capitol in Lansing, uh, those people are very thin blue line, pro-police, uh, pro-law enforcement. But at the same time, they're seemingly also those who are concerned about the government coming and taking their guns when it would be law enforcement that would be charged and tasked with doing that. That's right. You're, you're right. They, they, they're very contradictory in many ways. We're talking with Dr. Joellen Vineyard. She's a historian and the author of the book Right in Michigan's Grassroots, From the KKK to the Michigan Militia. Uh, let's head to the phones right now into Huntington Woods. Uh, Jackie, uh, thanks for coming on Detroit Today this morning. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I was just wondering, I've been wondering about this a lot, if she could, if our guest could comment on the role of toxic masculinity in these movements. Um, I mean, it's without a doubt, there, you know, there's women in these movements, but without a doubt, the vast majority of armed militias are led by, propagated by men and, um, you know, the white nationalism and all of it. 
and of course our president is a perfect example of that as well. So I just I haven't heard people talk a lot about that, but I don't I don't think there's a coincidence that their target was a women led administration with a secretary of state, attorney general, governor, and then of course a, a black um, uh, lieutenant governor. So I'll take the. Uh, yeah, and thanks a lot for the phone call, Jackie. Yeah, Dr. Vineyard, uh, what would you say about toxic masculinity playing into this? Right, she's right. Um, it, it is, all these groups have been heavily male-dominated, um, especially the very fringes of them. Um, on the whole, often their family groups, too, they take their children to, to firing ranges, they take them to training sessions, uh, but and, and women, they always say women are part of the group. As they say, the militia said, you know, we're not we're not white supremacists. We have black members, but uh, of course they're very few. Um, so she's she's absolutely right. And and Michigan's governor has been attacked as a nasty woman uh, by the president. Yeah, because I mean. For those that grew up in the 80s and 90s, as I did, you know, uh, we grew up on a steady stream of Westerns and action movies uh, that continues to this day. So you have an idea of what a man actually is. Uh, I'm from the Upper Peninsula. I went through hunter safety, much like many other uh, people in my grade and class did, along with uh, several women. But is the expectations of men in some circles, uh, is it still that way? Are we still cranking out uh, children who could, you know, who are expressing views of toxic masculinity? Well, I couldn't speak for, for the attitudes of all the children in Michigan. But, <laughs> but yes, uh, we, we still do. I mean, we talk about um, women and their importance and, and their equality but it, it's really not come come all the way down to the bottom or in the middle or even the top. Um, so it, it is still an attitude that, that men men are stronger. Men men know better. Uh, they aren't subject to whims or you know fancy. So yes. Yeah, and it, and uh, Jackie brought up the fact that all of the. You know, the top three positions of power in Michigan are filled by women. That's right. And, and so it's, is it Michigan a special case in that regard where it really kind of brings out the misogynistic feelings in many of the, uh, the white men in the state? It probably does, yes. Um, we don't know if there were any women involved. This sounds like it's just a, a smaller group of, of, you know, people who are prone to violence and taking uh, more violent action. Let's head back to the phone lines. If you would like to chime in, go ahead and give us a call at 313-577-1019. Uh, Elena, good morning. Elena, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. I was just um, wondering what you're thinking about the incredibly different approach the media has taken between this group and their clear plan to harm the governor and the man who was in the news in the last few months, but very briefly and the way in which Kim Worthy spoke about Robert Tesh, who made a credible threat online against the governor and he was a downtown developer and he threatened the governor for her lockdown order. It was a threat against the attorney general, Dana Nessel, and Governor Whitmer. And instead, they put him on a tether, and you haven't heard another word about him. But he made a threat to harm the governor. Yeah, uh, and thanks for the phone call, Elena. I, I think there is a bit of a difference in this regard, just because uh, they were able to kind of survey the threat. Uh, it was just an online threat. And of course, sometimes that does lead to violence. But also, this was an organized plot uh, involving several different entities and people who had weapons and explosives. Uh, do, do you see it that way, Dr. Vineyard? Yes. Yes, it is a different situation. These people uh, had been planning for months, apparently, and they were armed and they did have explosive devices that they were making. Um, so it's not, I mean, there are idle threats, I don't know how idle, all the time 
made against government leaders. And so I, I think this is a group that, that was prepared and eager to take action. Yeah, why, why do you think they could pull this off? Uh, they, they think they're maybe more competent because if, if you look at the mugshots, it's a ragtag bunch of guys. Yep. And normally when the gentleman that we saw on the, you know, the lawn of the state capitol, they're using piecemeal equipment, some of it ill-fitting, and the tactical gear uh, didn't look like it suited them particularly well. And yes, they had the firepower with them. But at the same time, uh, it, it looked very unorganized and not exactly what you'd expect out of a, quote-unquote, well-regulated militia. That's right. Uh, they, they do look like a ragtag group. But unfortunately, there are many people who look like ragtag groups who feel they have been left behind and, and have in, in several ways. Michigan's economy was in terrible shape, and the promise of democracy was trickling down very slowly. So um, they, they do look like they were not very well equipped or prepared, but they were determined. That's, that's the thing about them. They organized, they had the, their own numbers, um, and they were, they were determined to act. Is that the case in the ease of being able to get a firearm in this state, in this country, wherein even one person... Uh, who has their mindset can have easy access to firearms, ammunition, and cause havoc, like we've seen in many mass shootings all across the country, like in you know Las Vegas and El Paso. Sure, we have we have very easy gun access in this country, uh, legal or illegal, and and in Michigan we have one of the largest groups of NRA members in the country, and so yes, the ability to get a hold of of guns is is not a problem so why do you think that people were so upset with uh governor whitmer when it comes to the the laws i mean they they immediately come out saying that she's a tyrant uh we're in the middle of a pandemic uh and i think most people were frustrated with the fact that we had to stay at home. We couldn't go to work with our, you know, we couldn't go to our favorite restaurants and a host of other things. We had to limit our movements within the state of Michigan to stop the spread. And so in that regard, I mean, does it really match up with Governor Whitmer being a tyrant that we think of in the classic sense, I guess? Well, to their minds, it does. They believe they were being denied basic freedoms. Um, you know, there are people who think that, that helmet laws, seatbelt laws, all of these things are a denial of basic freedom, but not quite to the same, same extent as right now, when so many businesses, restaurants, bowling alleys, swimming pools have been closed. So they saw Governor Whitmer, this, this group, as really denying them their basic rights as Americans. Yeah, interesting. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Joellen Vineyard. Uh, she's a historian and the author of the book, Right in Michigan's Grassroots, from the KKK to the Michigan Militia. Uh, let's head back to the phone lines. If you'd like to chime in, 313-577-1019. Oh, no, we will keep it here for right now. So is there, when it comes to these militia groups, is there an internal power structure? Do we usually have a leader or is it really just part of the collective? Well, there usually is a leader uh, to, to some extent or another, and that's one of the problems with forming. An, there's no statewide militia because the leaders fought among themselves over tactics, over uh, goals, and and so they could not agree who was going to be the leader. But but yes, there usually is is a leader of of the group um, within. As they, that's why they they split off into so many different little groups. Yeah, how how do these groups usually are they brought down? Is it is it infighting? Is it you know a fight over the uh, overall power struggle? Do people just lose interest uh, in, in the course of the investigation? Uh, when one of the plots started talking about going after law enforcement, uh, somebody got cold feet and contacted uh, federal agents, and that's how they were you know able to infiltrate. Uh, one of the groups and, you know, kind of get after people. Is this like a cycle that we've seen an awful lot? Right. There are often in 
informants within the, the groups, within the militia groups. That was one of their arguments against each other, is that one of the leaders they would charge was really an informant for the FBI or the BATF. So they always, these are people who are fearful, and they always fear that internally they've also got problems. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, we get most of our view of these militia groups uh, via popular culture. And so it, it seems like there's always seemingly some sort of conflict within that brings them down. Uh, is this, it, I guess, a an instance where, you know, art is right there in lockstep with reality? Um, yeah, it, it is. Many things sort of cause them to wear down. Uh, it's an effort to go to meetings all the time. It's an effort to stay alert, and they get people get, you know, concerned with their own family lives, and they drift away from the militia. Sometimes they're disgusted by the leadership. Sometimes they they don't want to go train every weekend. You know, yeah. it, it's a variety of things that bring them down. But most of these groups have a fairly short life in terms of their organized. Um, activity, but the the problem is that the sentiments that they are harboring reflect a broader sentiment in the, in the population. And in each one of these time periods, we see uh, laws enacted or changes come that really reflect some of the direction that these people, you know, were were heading in. Yeah. Uh, let's head back to the phones real quick, 313-577-1019. Let's head up to Flint. Landon, good morning. Uh, hi, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Very well, thank you. Good, good. Uh, my question uh, for you and, uh, and the doctor that we have on the line is, uh, when do we start uh, referring to this group as a uh, terrorist organization, as uh, their act was going to be an act of terror and not really in lines with what we've seen traditionally with the militia? Yeah, that's a, that, that's an interesting question, uh, Landon. Thanks a lot for the phone call, uh, Doctor Vineyard. Uh, what do you think? Well, um, we label groups terrorists when we decide to label them terrorists, <laughs> yeah. and and that's part of the problem. Uh, we have not been concerned about domestic terrorism over the last few years. Uh, the president has paid little attention to that problem, even though it's been brought to his attention that domestic terrorism is a greater threat than external terrorists. So we like to label people terrorists because it makes it easy to explain away their activities and attitudes. Yeah, it seems in this case it would be a slam dunk to refer to them as terrorists. Uh, The the state charges reflect terrorism. The federal charges really do not. Um, From all accounts and the allegations made, these were politi- politically motivated men. It's essentially the simple definition of terrorism. If this was a group of Muslim men, uh, do you think the federal charges might reflect uh, terrorism? Sure. I think they probably would. Uh, it, that's, that's part of the problem, our, our inconsistency in identifying groups and in, in acting in a way that... that <laughs> Will, will help. We often exaggerate the problem of just a few without understanding that the problem is broader in society. Yeah. Let's sneak in one more phone call here. Uh, let's go to Warren. Delphine, good morning. Hi. Um, I've been a number of times in Lansing when those guys are there, mostly guys. And they're so menacing. You're afraid to walk up to the Capitol building, and the whole place is full of them and all their guns. It's so scary. And uh, you're not allowed to bring even a piece of paper that says peace. So this is, and it's as a result of, I think, the Republican-controlled legislature this has got to stop. There can be no arms in, in the Capitol or around the Capitol. This is crazy. And it also seems as if the uh, police or whoever is 
in charge, the state police, whatever, like they're siding with them. And you're the loony because you want peace and you want women's rights or whatever. Yeah. Uh, no, no that, that, that's a good point, Delphine. And uh, thanks a lot for the phone call. Uh, kind of wrapping things up here, Dr. Vineyard. Is that kind of strange that there's a disconnect in the uh, Michigan capital where protest signs uh, are not allowed, but firearms are? Both are seemingly granted by constitutional rights. That's right. There, 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 that is a disconnect. And, you know, the, the taking guns right into the, to the floor at the state legislature is ridiculous. She's, she's right. Uh, and, and I don't think it's the problem of the police. I don't think we can blame the police for this disparity. It's, it's just that uh, we're, we're in a very confused, conflicted situation always between democratic rights and the need to maintain order. Yeah. Uh, and I guess we will have to leave it there. Dr. Joellen Vineyard is a historian and the author of the book Right in Michigan's Grassroots, From the KKK to the Michigan Militia. Uh, Dr. Vineyard, thanks a lot for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. We'll talk with Joseph Lehman, the president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. The think tank successfully filed a lawsuit to stop Governor Whitmer from being able to issue executive orders during the pandemic. We'll get the center's take on this news. Robert and Roseville, hang on. We will get to your phone call. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Detroit Today, and for Stephen Henderson, I'm Russ McNamara. Good morning. The people charged with terrorism and conspiring to kidnap Governor, according to a federal affidavit, were mad at her for her executive orders she's been issuing during the pandemic. The Mackinac Center for Public Policy is also not a fan of the governor's executive orders. Their legal foundation successfully filed a lawsuit challenging the governor's authority to force businesses to shut down and issue mask requirements. But the Mackinac Center issued a statement yesterday condemning violence and threats against anyone in politics, regardless of their beliefs. Joining me now is Joseph Lehman, the president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Joseph, thanks a lot for joining me this morning. Good morning, Russ. Thank you. So tell me, I'm just curious, do Republican leaders in the state of Michigan and then nationally uh, with President Trump, do they kind of bear some responsibility for plots like these and not particularly tamping down uh, some of the rhetoric towards Governor Whitmer. We've seen the protesters and Republican leaders mingle on the Capitol lawn. Uh, some of those protests involved, you know, Nazi imagery, nooses and the like. Uh, it, do some Republicans bear some of this responsibility or are they two completely separate issues? Well, I think the uh, people who have uh, been have been charged with the with the crimes, and if they are in fact found guilty, you know, they ultimately bear the uh, uh, responsibility for their actions. However, I don't want to minimize the role that rhetoric plays, and everyone who pays any attention to politics can see that the uh, heat level of rhetoric in this uh, country, political rhetoric, is just up at, at record levels. And so we, we have uh, the, the highest figures in politics in the land uh, from, from Donald Trump and everyone else who, uh, uh, it, it, with some of their rhetoric, are uh, throwing some gasoline around. And so it's not so surprising when there's a lot of gasoline thrown around that sometimes a spark will find it. And, and so it's, I think there's a there's a relationship there, um, but we we've always got to separate uh, the uh, people res- who commit violent uh, acts or plan them, you know, from uh, from people who just speak. So the Mackinac Center uh, has come out against uh, a lot of the uh, what what you've typified as kind of an overstepping of her authority. Uh, you challenge that in court. 
do you think it ra- uh, raises and rises to the levels of tyranny that some have accused Governor Whitmer of? Or is this no, just the difference? Is this just the difference in policy and ideals overall for government? Yeah, it, uh, tyranny is not a word that we would use in, in, in our lawsuit. We weren't actually saying that we were opposed to the policies in her executive orders, some 180 of them, I think, related to the pandemic. Our lawsuit was about the process. Our lawsuit said that when we have an emergency and it needs to be addressed, that the law says the governor and the legislature need to work together. And, but however, the governor was making a different claim under a law that has been found unconstitutional now. She was claiming that she had a sole power to do this. Uh, and so even without regard to the content of her orders, we were saying these orders are being put in place the wrong way. They need to include the legislature. And that is what the court uh, said when it agreed with us. Is that where the divide really shows up? Because it seems even during the early stage of the pandemic, uh, Republicans agreed with the initial orders and then just kind of refused to go along with it from there. I mean, is that is that part of the problems in politics these days, I guess, in the state of Michigan? Well, I, I don't think Michigan is, is such an outlier in terms of the political heat level. Mm-hmm. But look, there are 49 other states that somehow have governors and legislatures working together. And uh, now Michigan is going to have to fall in line with those. And the when the you're, you're right, Russ, that the legislature and the governor were working together in the first few weeks of the pandemic. And then Governor Whitmer asked for a, a pretty extensive uh, extension of the time limit. And the legislature said, no, we don't want to give you that much time. We want to give you less time. And then the governor just said, fine, I will then do it all by myself, effectively cutting the legislature out of the out of the system until last week's Supreme Court ruling. So so now uh, if you ask me to predict what are we going to end up with in terms of restrictions now that the governor and the legislature are probably going to have to work together, I think we'll end up with 80 or 90 percent of the restrictions we have today, uh, that those will be the things that, uh, that they can all agree on. Uh, and of course, that's always a political process with, with give and pull and the Republicans and the Democrats have different incentives. Yeah. How would you rate the governor's pandemic response so far? Well, in, in terms of process, uh, actually following uh, the constitutional balance of power and checks and balances, we would give her a very low grade. I mean, that's why we that's why we sued uh, in, in terms of her the content of her policies. Um, we at the Mackinac Center are more more economists and, and legal thinkers. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not epidemiological thinkers, but I, I think our policies have been maybe not as effective as some states, but um, uh, they're, they're not really they're not really that different. Uh, we we poked a little fun at some of her executive orders early on. For example, you can carry a walking stick on a golf course, but you can't carry, carry a golf club on a golf course. We thought that was silly. Uh, but in the early days of the pandemic, the governor actually agreed with some Mackinac Center recommendations and put them into place. And those were some those were some good ideas that made it easier to practice medicine across state lines. It made it easier to get medical help over the phone made it easier to free up hospital beds without asking government's permission. Those were good moves that the governor did early on. But some of the some of the other things that she did, uh, we we our, our concern became she's not doing this with the input from the legislature. Yeah. Are, are you are you you know, were you thinking that she kept some businesses closed longer than was necessary? Uh, you know what? I think she probably did. But the emphasis there is on think. It would be my guess. And I'll yeah. tell you what, the governor governor has a tough job. Uh, this, these are unprecedented circumstances. And she had to make her best guesses in a lot of cases. I know she's got got experts. But but in the end, even in official circles, 
And even when elected officials need to reassure the people that they're doing a good job, they're doing some guesswork. And the people have to cut uh, elected officials a little bit of slack for that. It would be nice sometimes to hear from elected officials that, uh, hey, we're doing the best we can. We don't always get it right. Uh, but I think the governor has pulled back on, on some of the executive orders that, that clearly were not, uh, were not producing much benefit, but were producing some harm. Uh, some of the restrictions uh, have been lightened up, as everybody knows, and, and, and hopefully uh, they won't become uh, more strict, but they may have to uh, if health conditions change. Yeah, we're talking with Joe Lehman, the president of the Mackinac Policy Center, uh, I, I did promise Robert that we would get to him, uh, so let's head to Roseville right now. Uh, Robert, good morning. Good morning. So uh, what was your comment, sir? Um, well, actually, my, my original comment was for the author previously with regards to why isn't, why isn't the news media keep tabs on Antifa and Black Lives Matter the same way as all the other militia groups and treat them equally with looking into them, especially when their website and everything else literally dictates or says that they want to change everything mm-hmm. in a non-constitutional way. Gotcha. And uh, I appreciate the comment there, uh, Robert. Uh, you know, Basically, there, there's a bit of a difference currently between uh, the rhetoric surrounding uh, the anti-fascist group uh, collective uh, Antifa and plotting an overall takeover of an overall uh, takeover and kidnapping of a governor. Uh, Joseph Lehman, I'm sorry we've run out of time, but uh, thanks a lot for joining us on Detroit Today. Anytime, Russ. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. Today's show was produced by Shiraz Amath, Tia Graham, Laura Herberg, Quinn Kleinfelter, Pat Batchelor, Alex McLennan, Sasha Ryan, Eli Newman, and Meta Stangi. Jerome Vaughn is our news director. Joan Isabella is our program director. Matt Trevathan is the show's technical, technical director and engineer. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. You can join us Monday when Stephen Henderson returns. I'm Russ McNamara.